HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. With more than 30 weekly podcasts, HRN has something for every food lover. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network since 2009. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. That would be great if there was some sort of union or some like collective like bill of rights or some some basic terms. I mean, look, I've been lucky enough to actually get decent cookbook advances, but I know plenty of people who have been paid $3,000 to write a book. I mean, even if you keep it all, the you're making less than a cent an hour for the amount of time that it takes to put a book together. Like that's insane. And so I think publishers would either make some concessions if authors unionized and demanded maybe more upfront pay instead of having to wait until six months after the book comes out to get your last paycheck. And paycheck is the wrong word. Your last check, which is an advance on royalties. This week on Meet and 3, we are opening up our cookbooks to explore how foodways are preserved through text. We're talking to librarians, YouTubers, cooks, and publishers about the history of cookbooks and the state of the industry today. From black cookbooks to an artist's reimagination of a community cookbook in Maine, we are reading widely. If you can't get your nose out of the pages, then this week is for you. At the top of the episode, you heard the voice of Katie Parla, a Rome-based cookbook author musing on the less savory parts of the publishing industry. Today, you'll hear from her about the ins and outs of the publishing process. But if you want to hear more from Katie, you are in luck. We'll be returning to that conversation in a future bonus episode to hear her thoughts on the ongoing writer's strike, ChatGPT, and what all this could mean for the future of cookbooks. But before we discuss the cookbooks of today, we look back at the cookbooks of yesterday. I'm Matt Patterson, and this is Meet and 3 on HRN. Meet and 3. Meet and 3. Meet and 3. One meat, three sides. Food, news, and storytelling. A square meal for your ears. Meat and three. As promised, we start by looking backwards. 
Liv Cunnins-Berkowitz introduces us to a librarian who works with antiquarian cookbooks. I love flipping through recipes, sometimes even more than I enjoy cooking. And over the past couple of years, I've discovered the joy of reading old cookbooks. Marika von der Steenhoven works in special collections at the Bowdoin College Library. And she helped establish Bowdoin's collection of over 700 printed American cookbooks. The cookbooks offer just such, a, such an intimate glimpse into the past. Bowdoin's collection includes cookbooks that are over 200 years old. One of the collection's oldest books especially stands out to Marika. It's thought to be or is often described as the very first American cookbook. She's talking about American cookery, which was published in 1796. Which is by Amelia Simmons, but that is like the authorship is ascribed later. So on the title page, it says by an orphan. And um, there's the first time that you see in print, like the use of cornmeal or any sort of corn product. First time that you're seeing like cranberries come into recipes. So you're seeing this very sort of indigenous foodways coming into this book. The collection, of course, includes books by big name publishers. But to me, Marika really emphasized the many cookbooks that were self-published or made within and for local communities. And we also have another collection that came a little bit later, which is called the Maine Charitable Cookbook Collection. And that is full of examples of um, community, church, cookbooks. You know, often think of there are a lot of those plastic spiral bindings in, in that collection. Community cookbooks can teach us so much about a moment in history. They reveal what foods and technologies people had access to what cooking techniques were in vogue at a specific time. And cookbooks can provide insight into the lived experiences of people who are often left out of the history books. With community cookbooks, and I think early American cookbooks in general, I think, A, it's a really amazing way to see women um, in print and voices of women. Marika couldn't wait to tell me about a recent addition to the Bowdoin Library. It's not exactly a cookbook, but a multimedia artwork titled The Women of Windy Hill by Rachel E. Church, who's a bookmaker and printmaker based in Maine. This beautiful um, clamshell box opens up, and the book is interleaved cloth napkins and paper plates. Um, And they're handmade uh, paper plates. There's uh, various different print techniques, from laser printing to letterpress and cyanotype. This mixed-media work honors a woman's church group in rural Maine, who made a community cookbook in the midst of the pandemic. Their book, which was called Cooped Up Cooking, featured recipes that nourished them during that difficult time. And she includes uh, things from this community cookbook, including photographs of the women, stories, um, recipes, some of these community members' reflections on um, creating the cookbook or why this food was important. And so this is amazing book that you can kind of pull out and read as if you're setting the table or clearing the table. There's so many different ways to kind of interact with it. An inscription on the box that holds the handmade napkins and plates reads, quote, Community cookbooks are valuable because they document not only the foods eaten in a specific community in a given time, but also the values, history, and social networks of a community, and particularly, but not exclusively, communities of women, unquote. Cookbooks are so much more than trusty tools in the kitchen. They're historic documents and even works of art. So the next time you're reading a cookbook, even one from this year, try reading it like a historical document. Whose voices are featured? What assumptions does the book make about what you might have handy in your kitchen? 
And what does the book in your hands reveal about a community's tastes or values? Up next, Sasha Dubose talks about all things Black cookbooks and culture with Kayla Stewart. For my 21st birthday, my mom gifted me a signed copy of the historical cookbook of the American Negro. Published in 1958 and written by the National Council of Negro Women, this cookbook was both a piece of history and a family heirloom. This gift started my now vast Black cookbook collection. I craved to feel more connected to my culture, and as a foodie, cookbooks were the best way to do that. To explore cookbooks' role in Black cultural preservation, I talked with food journalist, cookbook author, and fellow okra stew lover, Kayla Stewart. Her love for cooking started with watching her mother and grandmother. Those food memories helped her understand Blackness as a child. My parents are from Louisiana, so crawfish etouffee, shrimp creole, gumbo, all of these dishes were so important to me. Kind of understanding myself as a child of the South, as a Black woman, really gave me kind of an initial way to develop my identity and really come to understand who I was, but also where I'm from and where that heritage is and why it's so important. Cookbooks can serve as a reflection of your own lineage. In fact, Delagichi Home Cooking, co-written by Kayla and Edisto Island matriarch Emily Meggett, helped me connect with my own Gullah ancestry. Tips and tricks I thought were unique to my family turned out to be Gullah tradition. I learned a lot about myself from Miss Emily, and so did Kayla. She's such a, a vivid example of like so many Black women of her generation. She was trained in oral manner, and she memorized those recipes and understood cooking by touch and taste um, and vision. You know, that, it's interesting because when we were working on the cookbook, I actually learned so much from that. In many African-American communities, recipes are traditionally passed down orally from generation to generation cookbooks serve as tangible records of this tradition, allowing Black Americans to share and replicate recipes. When we publish, when we give people like Miss Emily book cookbook deals, and when we give people from Gullah Geechee communities and from Creole communities in Louisiana, Black Creole communities, and from other parts of the world, we're creating opportunities for Black people to tell their stories in the same ways that white people have been able to do for generations. Black cookbooks show everyone that Black history and culture expands beyond stories of suffering. And food was a part of all of these different aspects of Black history. And so having those cookbooks, having those records allows us to place ourselves in those times, to understand the many ways in which people were feeding and entertaining themselves and finding joy, which I think is so important. When I'm trying to figure out what Black folks were doing in a certain period of time, I turn to my cookbook collection. I rarely get a concrete answer, but I will leave with a new recipe to try and a greater understanding of where my beloved food traditions come from. We'll be right back with more Meet and 3 after a brief break. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network. Roberta's was founded in Bushwick in 2008 and has become one of the most iconic restaurants in the country. HRN made its home inside of Roberta's in 2009, and together they have become part of the DIY fabric of the neighborhood. 
Roberta's is open for lunch and dinner seven days a week and serves much more than just the famous wood-fired pizzas. Their team dreams up new salads, pastas, and sandwiches on the regular. Roberta's Tiki Bar is alive and well in the back garden, serving up frozen drinks in the summer and hot toddies in the winter. Stop by the bakery and takeout spot next door for fresh breads, sticky buns, and pizzas to go. But Roberta's also extends beyond Bushwick, with multiple locations in New York City, Long Island, and Los Angeles. You can also find their frozen pies in grocery stores around the country. The spirit of Roberta's, like Heritage Radio Network, is everywhere. Here's to many more years of pizza-powered radio. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. Welcome back to Meet N3. Have you ever wondered what it takes to publish a cookbook? Taylor Early's got the scoop. Katie Parlett knows a thing or two about publishing. She's written, edited, and contributed to more than 35 books, and that's including seven cookbooks. Since the only example I have of the cookbook publishing process is what I watched in the movie Julie Julia, I sat down with the Rome-based food and beverage writer, culinary guide, and absolute legend to fill in the blanks. So when you create a cookbook for a corporate publisher, you are essentially hired. Uh, I suppose like the legal term would be like a freelancer. You're paid in three or four installments, depending on the contract. And that's an advance on royalties. And, you know, once you sign that contract, you're given like a year-ish, sometimes less, sometimes more, to go and produce a book. And that means uh, research, develop, test recipes, and then write the rest of the text. Katie told me that her seven cookbooks are around 60,000 words each. That means that each draft is around 250 pages. The drafted book gets sent back and forth with an editor a bunch of times. After the edits get settled, the book cover process begins. But that's not as straightforward as it seems. Even if your name is on the cover, you don't have much say over how the book looks, feels, or even how it's sold and distributed. This lack of autonomy is understandably frustrating. When I crunched some numbers after essentially losing a lot of money while making a lot of money for publishers, uh, I am like in the red 30 grand for Food of the Italian South, although I've sold 35,000 copies. Uh, I know that my publisher didn't lose money on it, but I did. After years of commiserating with her peers, Katie looked for another way forward. And like after a long time of just like, honestly, just like barreling through work and as a freelancer, you know, you just are flailing around trying to make a living. I hadn't paused to reflect on how detrimental the cookbook world had been on my finances. It certainly had played havoc with my mental health and my ability to like draw boundaries and carve out any personal space for myself. And that's not unique to me. This is an industry that uh, that makes very few people wealthy, at least on the author side. Katie's most recent cookbook is a very special one. She self-published it. And so when I set about creating Food of the Italian Islands, I did so because I looked at the numbers and I was like, yo, like I have the skills to write the book. I can hire the same editors that I want to work with and hire that team and then find a printer uh, and then have it shipped to a warehouse. And like that stuff is not that difficult. I am glad, of course, that I've had prior experience. But, you know, the corporate publishing world is it's a gatekeeping industry. And I think whether deliberately or not deliberately, what's drilled into your head at every level, whether it's, you know, from the publisher or even from your agent, is that 
there's one way to do it and this is how you do it. And there's no prestige um, in self-publishing and it's risky. And I, I did not find that to be true. Katie found a certain amount of freedom in self-publishing and is now looking towards helping other cookbook authors find their own way too. I'm always encouraging people to, to think of different ways to like communicate and, and get their message out there. I don't think cookbooks are necessarily the only way to communicate stories that people have. It still is a prestigious one for sure, but not everyone needs to be going out and publishing their own book. It does take a lot of time and a lot of stress, but in my experience, uh, it was really worth it. And I'm shepherding other people through that process and don't intend to return to the corporate publishing world. Maybe if I start hating money, then I will. (laughs) Big, big thank you to Katie Parla for sharing her experience and expertise with us and hopefully inspiring a few of you listening to find new ways to tell your own stories. For our final story, Kate Dario introduces us to a YouTuber who's cooking her way through old Betty Crocker recipes for a new audience. All right, let's get into it. Tangy tomato aspic is from section D, salads for every occasion, and it's recipe card number eight. I'm a little nervous about this one, but I'm excited to try it out. Tomato aspic, I guess, is like a savory jello. I don't know why that's called a salad, but we'll find out. You just heard Melinda Sikela in her Unboxing Betty YouTube project. Melinda has been making her way through a collection of vintage Betty Crocker recipes. That name, Betty Crocker, is so ubiquitous in American cooking. But how much do you actually know about it? Melinda became interested in Betty about two and a half years ago when she found a compendium of over 650 fan-favorite recipes from 1971. It wasn't until I started kind of diving into who Betty Crocker was that I learned that she wasn't a real person. She was kind of a marketing gimmick to sell flour, but had such a huge impact on like helping women in the kitchen and teaching people how to cook through all kinds of things, cookbooks, radio shows. So I realized that like there was a project here. Like I wanted to help tell her story and the story of like what it was like to cook in the middle of the 20th century. And so Melinda felt like the individual recipe cards were particularly conducive to an episodic format. She was so intrigued and fascinated by what she was learning about mid-century cooking that she wanted to share these recipes. We don't cook like this today anymore. So um, I thought about just doing it on Instagram and then I figured it might be helpful to like watch me make the recipe. And it is kind of to see how recipes were developed back during that time and unpack like how the steps were made. It really, um, I found it to be like entertaining to try to cook a recipe that was written 50 years ago. These recipes are like a time capsule of mid 20th century American cooking trends and values. Melinda realized so much of what we take for granted as American culinary practices are actually just wrapped up in marketing. A huge thing for me, I realized right away, is how many like convenience products are involved in these recipes. And that makes sense for a lot of reasons. I think, first of all, because Betty Crocker is from General Mills, they were trying to sell General Mills products by writing these recipes. So they wanted you to use these convenience ingredients, things like box cake mix or box frosting, um, jello, those kinds of things. For Melinda, she realized there were valuable ideas waiting to be uncovered. 
But I think it also just speaks to that time period in the 50s and 60s when people were leaning away from the hours long cooking process where you're in the kitchen all day and trying to find ways to make things really quick. And so a lot of these recipes have many, many shortcuts and use a lot of pre-packaged processed products, which is just not how I cook today and how most of us cook at home today. I feel like we've kind of gone back to more like whole food cooking, but so I'm I'm trying a lot of things for the first time, like packaged pie crust mix and things that you typically would make from scratch. But um, this was an era of convenience, for sure. Betty may not have been real, but her impact was. She stood in as a friend, a confidant, for women at a time when they were expected to be comfortable in the kitchen. Betty's role in the kitchen was to teach women how to cook and make them feel confident um, at times where... They maybe were embarrassed to go to their mom or their sister or their friend and ask for advice. They could write into Betty Crocker and get advice. And a lot of her cookbooks are written in a way that helps like the most novice cook make a really complicated recipe. And, you know, especially the like Betty Crocker picture cookbook, which is the big red famous cookbook, was one of the first cookbooks of its kind that kind of showed individual steps in photography so that you really, she was trying to make everything as foolproof as possible. And I really like to like take that ethos from her. And when I'm cooking a Betty Crocker recipe, like understanding how she's really coming in from that angle of, of teaching and helping you learn and understand it step by step. And um, it also makes me think when I read a different cookbook from a different author, like I have more kind of insight into how they think and what they think is important about each step and how to teach others. So it definitely has opened my mind to like, well, now whenever I read any recipe, I think about this, this idea of helping someone learn to cook as they're going. So it's funny that I always refer to her as a real person, even though she's not. But Betty Crocker started as kind of um, the signature at the bottom of a letter because uh, Washington Crosby Company was trying to sell flour and women were writing in asking questions about how to use the flour. And so um, the home economists on the team there would just sign every letter as Betty Crocker. Um, And so soon it was just this whole team of people putting out content as Betty Crocker, cookbooks, radio shows. They would go and do like cooking seminars and high school gymnasiums and stuff. But it was all under this moniker of Betty Crocker. And I think um, something that really grounds her in reality for me is that they would always make portraits of her and they would uh, on like vintage cooking cookbooks and boxes, packaging, you can see these portraits, but they would change the portrait over time. So it always looked um, like she was uh, perpetually 35 years old, was always like fashionable to the times, what she was wearing. And so she felt like a real person, even though she wasn't. And for, I think, almost like half a century, people thought she was real. It wasn't until like the 1950s or 60s where it was like revealed that she wasn't a real person. So um, to me, I feel like there is this like unique voice of Betty. Even in all the cookbooks that I have from my collection, like there's a letter in the front of every cookbook that's signed by Betty and it sounds like her writing. Like you can tell that there is this this voice that's unique. And so I feel like I feel like she's a real person helping me in the kitchen, even, even though she never was. That's our show. Thanks for listening. Learn more about the guests and topics we touched on this week by checking out our show notes. Special thanks this week to Liv Cummins-Berkowitz, Sasha DuBose, Taylor Early, and Kate Dario. 
Meet and Three is produced by H. Conley, Taylor Early, and produced and engineered by me, Matt Patterson. Our theme song was composed by Breakmaster Cylinder. This program is supported in part by public funds from the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs in partnership with the City Council. Meet and Three is powered by Simplecast. Meet and Three is a production of Heritage Radio Network, the world's pioneer food radio station. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org and follow us at heritage underscore radio. And please stay in touch. Whether you have a story idea or would just like to say hey, write us at ideas at meetand3.nyc. That's all spelled out.